Good morning, church family. So glad to see you. I want to teach you something that we would say not so much in Minnesota, but definitely in Wisconsin growing up. If you ventured out of the house in a snowstorm, in a blizzard, we would say, you're a hardy folk, okay? You're hardy folk. Thank you for coming. I know one of the things I've learned in Austin is that when it rains, people act like as if it's snowing, like it's a blizzard. So I'm glad to see you guys here. We were like, is it a snow day? You know, love to have you. Also, um, I want to say thank you to the worship team. Um, they, they had to call an audible this morning. Um, Becca Tenhaken, our director of worship and creative arts, is ill this morning. So early in the morning, she texted saying, not making it, help. And so, thank you so much for stepping up to the plate. Um, before we jump into God's word this morning, uh, two things. One, I really want you to crack open a Bible this morning. So if you don't have one, you can find one underneath your seat. Or you are permitted to use your phone or device for Bible purposes only. But before we get into that, I want to um, remind you that on February 2nd, we have this thing. It's the first Thursday of every month. We're going to do these things called Revival Nights. Now, I, I just don't want you to think like, oh man, it's going to be one of those tent revivals, sawdust trail, all that kind of stuff. We're really speaking more about God reviving and stirring up our hearts, okay? And so during these revival nights, what we're going to do is we're going to gather as a church around Scripture, we're going to worship, and we are going to pray together. And for this season, what we're going to do during these Thursdays is we're going to begin to journey through the book of Revelation and to see how that can stir up our hearts to live passionately for Jesus. So as part of Revival Nights, I want to bring to your attention these Connect cards, okay? So go ahead. I want you right now, practice with me. Let's interact in front of your seat is a Connect card. Grab one. I'm not going to continue until I see it. So if, if you want to get to lunch quicker, yeah. okay, grab it. On the back is how can we pray for you. What we want to do on these Thursdays is we want to collect all of these cards and we're going to pray for you as a church family. We're going to intercede and ask the Lord to move in your hearts. And so it may be just for you, it could be for your spouse, it could be for your kids, it could be for someone else, a circumstance, whatever it is, put it on here. We want to pray for you, okay? And so it's not just going to be us staff, it's going to be everybody who comes on those Thursdays. We're going to take these cards and we're going to pray and take these to the throne room just like we see in Revelation, okay? So please, I want to encourage you to fill out, but also if you flip it around, if you need anything, we would love to connect with you. We would love to help you get connected into a group. That is a shameless plug. There you go. Okay. Luke 7, 29 through 40. When all the people heard this, 
And the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. What causes us to judge people? You ever think about that? What causes us to label people and to create categories and to place people in them and to keep them there? Like why is it that we can't seem to look past people's past or look beyond their perceived reputation and see their heart? What is it? And worse yet, like do we not more often than not, aren't we like actually comfortable with that? Like it's kind of a twisted and vile thing if we sit and think about it. But we need to be honest this morning. Isn't it much easier to pass judgment and uphold our man-made created categories and labels instead of moving towards them and loving them? Welcome to church. We do this to encourage and to build up our pride and to also soothe our insecurities. We try to do this or we do this because we want to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and feel better about the people we associate with, my group versus their group. We want to believe that we're right and they're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. This issue is as ancient as time, and the root of this is found in the fall of humanity. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world and completely ravaged God's beautiful creation and introduced this thing called division and segregation. And now the world, as we know it, is far more familiar with hatred and judgment and evil instead of love and kindness. You see, when God created the world, he placed Adam and Eve in a garden that he created. And there was all sorts of trees that they could eat fruit from. But there were two specific trees that God singled out, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
He says, you can eat the fruit of the tree of life, but the tree of the good knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat that fruit. Well, why? That's a very important question. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Like one, obedience, dependence upon God. But there's really a deeper reason. Because of what would happen if you ate that fruit. Your eyes would be open and you would see good and evil. And as we look at that text, what it says is you will become like God. In the essence of playing the role of God in judgment. Instead of being dependent upon God for what is right and wrong and allowing God to be the judge and arbiter of good and evil, now because we've eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have taken that role. We want to be God. We want to play God. We want to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, and who is good and who is wrong. And so now human judgment has entered the world. And we have been feeling the vile effects of this sin ever since. And this disease is deep inside of each and every one of us. Becoming like God. Playing God. We've created a world full of hate. Resentment, division, segregation, pain, hurt, isolation, loneliness. Just watch the news. It's everywhere. And beneath the surface of it all is this vile desire that lurks in the shadows in our hearts. The ever-present desire to create God in our image. We strive to do this. Here's a good example. Have you ever picked and chose what truths in scripture apply to you and not? If so, you're playing God. You're creating a God in your own image. But the strongest litmus test of if you are or have created God in your image is how do you see and love people. Anne Lamont, she pulls no punches when she says this, speaking of the heart of this issue. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) Comedic, but true. So the question that has been stirring inside of me as I've been studying this table dynamic that we see with Jesus, Simon, and this woman is this question. Are we attempting to conform God into our image or are we open to allowing God to conform us to his image? Are we open to allowing God to change us, transform us to become more like Jesus? Or are we saying, no, God, I won't receive you unless you operate by my rules and fit in my paradigms and treat people the way I want to treat people. 
The best way to answer this question, if you are creating God in your image, if you're trying to get God to conform to you, is how do you love people? And Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 pulls no punches when he's laying out the blueprint of what it looks like to be one of his disciples and what it looks like to be someone in the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 43 through 47. You heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, so that you may be sons or children of your father who is heaven. He makes the sun to rise on the evil. We don't like that. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same? Jesus, in essence, is saying, don't try to place me into your image. I see people differently, and I love people differently. And if you're going to follow me, you have to be conformed to my ways and to who I am. So that's the question I want you to sit with as we jump into this text this morning. Are you attempting to conform God to be like you, or are you open to becoming like Jesus? I need you this morning to use your imagination. Because we can't just study this story as if it's just like a systematic theology. You have to feel, okay? You have to feel the tension. And I'm, I'm going to just like forewarning, parents, if you have kids in here, there's going to be one section where I'm going to be PG-13, okay? Because the reason why I'm choosing to do that is because you have to understand what was happening in this room at this time. This morning's story is around a different type of table than what we've talked about the two last two weeks. It's a table where there's a, a serious, tense scenario that's unfolding, and it's altogether unexpected. There's three main characters, and each character has a known reputation that's present at that table. But before we jump into this, there's a reason why I wanted to go back to that previous story just so we can understand like, what was happening at this scene. So let's go back to verse 29, 30, and 31 for a moment. This line here, these verses come on the heels of John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? Because doubts were starting to surface inside of them due to circumstances. And Jesus says, hey, go and tell John what you see and heard, right? The deaf hear, the blind see, the lepers are cured, the dead are raised, and the gospel is being proclaimed to the poor, and we, like, let's just be honest, like when we hear the word poor, we immediately think economically. But it's, it's not that. It, it's surely that, but it's also the spiritually poor, the, the uh, oppressed and the marginalized, the ones who have been categorized and labeled as hopelessly sinful. So Jesus is saying to, to John's disciples, go back and tell them what you see in here. And then what we see, and, and it's weird that like Luke puts it in parentheses, saying there's people 
who receive this as God's truth, and then there are some people who refused. And how they received it or refused was either did they receive the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, or not. And so Jesus is like, those who chose to receive me are those, in essence, willing to be conformed to my way. And those who are choosing to refuse me are refusing me because I'm not fitting their paradigm. And so Jesus, exasperated, says, what can I compare them to? And what's fascinating is we read this, we're like, what is it? Well, how does this make sense? Jesus is saying, what can I pair this generation to? Huh. Spoiled children. That's what he's saying. I, I, they're like spoiled children. Like he says, like, when they hear these things, like, I'm not going to dance to your music. I'm not going to play your game. Like, that's what his essence is being said. It's like, these children are calling out to each other in the marketplace. Some people are saying, hey, come play my game. And the spoiled children who are refusing Jesus are saying, no, I will only play with you if you play my game my way. And it also is like, they're singing these songs. And they're like, no, we're not going to dance to that unless you sing and dance to my song. And that's what Jesus is saying because he goes, man, what more do you want? We sent John the Baptist. He came not eating and not drinking, upholding the Nazarite way. And you said he's crazy. You called him a demon. Like, and he's talking about repentance. Oh, and then the son of man came. But he came on the other side of the pendulum. He came eating and drinking. And oh, you started to call him a glutton and a drunkard because of who he associates with. And then Jesus says, and this is why I bring this up, verse 35. Wisdom is vindicated or wisdom is proven right by its children, by the fruit in other words, wisdom will show which way is right. The fruit will reveal if my way is better than your way. If the way I see people is better than the way you see people. Wisdom is justified. It's vindicated. It's proven right. So now Luke goes, okay, here's the story on the heels of that. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Let's set this scene. This is not a one-on-one -on -one dinner. This is the Pharisee, who we know his name is Simon, inviting Jesus as the main guest where there's going to be other Pharisees and scribes at this table. It's a public affair. We don't really know the motivation or the intention there, but we can deduce that Simon hasn't fully made up his mind about Jesus because later on we, was, we will see that he was wondering if Jesus was a prophet or not, but by his actions he went, surely not. But we also can deduce clearly that he wasn't ready to accept him based upon how he treated Jesus upon entry. Okay? We will cover this in a little bit. But there is a tradition, and it is a strong held tradition, that when a Jewish person were to invite a guest into their home, they were to extend gracious acts of hospitality. Primarily three things. Wash their feet, greet them with a kiss, and anoint their head with oil. 
Now, at this table, were other Pharisees who surely were extended these gifts of hospitality. Because you know, if a Pharisee didn't, he would make a fuss about it. Jesus didn't. We don't know that to see, but I want you to know that. Because Jesus says later on, you didn't do this, Simon. You didn't do this. So every guest around the table knows that Simon slighted Jesus. Everybody's feet are clean around the table except Jesus' feet. That's tense. And Jesus doesn't make a fuss about it. He's like, eh, whatever. Feel that. Okay? Because now it's about to get real. And behold, like, that's like, oh shoot. Shock, surprise, this shouldn't happen. And behold, a woman of the city. This isn't a moniker of like saying, a woman from the city of Austin showed up. This is a label. This is like a reputation, right? Because it says a woman of the city who was a sinner, to be labeled or have the reputation as a woman of the city is to be essentially being labeled as you are sexually immoral and more than likely she was a prostitute. A prostitute shows up on the scene. And think about this, just read this. She heard that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house and she like prepared herself to go. She's like, oh, he's there. Okay, I know where he is. I want to be able to bring this expensive gift of thanks to him. So she premeditated her entry to this home. Guys, she knows what she's walking into. Like, th you got to think about this. She is so well aware of the Pharisees' holiness and purity standards. She knows she's an outcast. She knows she's labeled as a sinner. She knows she's not welcomed or accepted. She knows she doesn't have a seat at that table. But to her, it does not matter anymore. Before it did. But not anymore. Something happened. And what's being assumed here is that there was a previous interaction between this woman and Jesus. A previous interaction where Jesus extended forgiveness to her and she received it. And now she's experiencing the freedom of forgiveness. And she heard that Jesus is at Simon's house. I have to go there. I want to say thank you. She counts the cost. She weighs the pros and cons. She knows what can happen to her. I mean, like, she can be, like, physically punished. And she's like, I don't care. It's worth it. Imagine Simon sitting there watching this lady come in. Imagine the Pharisees at this dinner table seeing this happen. And, like, they're, like, in disgust. They're embarrassed. They don't know what to do. She proceeds to continue to walk up, and she's standing at Jesus' feet. Because at that time when they recline, the heads are at the table. The feet are extended back. She doesn't want to make a scene. She's not trying to cause a ruckus. She's not trying to stir the pot, as it were. She just wants to simply say, thank you. That's this scenario. It is Absolutely powerful. She comes 
because she knows that Jesus would receive her and Jesus would extend grace to her because he's already accepted her. After all, he's a friend of sinners. Three characters at this table. Three reputations. Powerful. You have Jesus, who's potentially a prophet, but he's also known as a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners. He teaches with authority and heals people. He's an enigma. We have to figure him out. And then you have a spoiled child who's part of this group that's unwilling to conform to anything other than their own traditions, anything other than the God who will fit their paradigm. And now you have this unwelcomed, unaccepted, sexually immoral woman who from the Pharisee's perspective is a hopeless sinner and from Jesus' perspective is now a woman who has been freed because she's been forgiven and has a new life. Imagine this scene. Standing behind him, verse, sorry, verse 38. Standing behind him at his feet. Guys, this is, I wish someone was laying up here. I would just act it out. But like, she, she just comes up behind his feet. And I honestly, I think this is, this is how it happened. She stood there. She didn't plan on crying. This wasn't like, oh man, when I get to Jesus, turn on the waterworks. She got there. She just wanted to give him a gift. And all of a sudden, being in his presence, overwhelmed by his love, while they are now in the presence of the very people who have pushed her out. She's like, I am accepted by the living God. Her emotions are overwhelming her, and she is now in this spontaneous act of weeping, not out of sorrow or fear, but of like joy. I can't believe it that he forgave me, he accepted me, and as she's weeping, her tears are falling on his feet. Remember, his feet are filthy. So you know what happens when a little raindrop hits a like a, a part of dust. It's like the dust just kind of like shoots apart. She's seeing her tears fall on his feet. And she's like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like instantly, without even thinking about it, she just gets on her knees. And she's probably looking for a towel. Doesn't see a towel and realizes, oh my goodness, his feet are dirty. Why didn't they wash his feet? So then she takes the next step, undoes her hair. Her hair falls down. She allows her tears to fall on his feet and starts to wash his feet with her hair. Now she's so moved by this whole scene. She's so close to his feet that she cannot but help share her affection by just kissing his his feet. And instead of taking the oil that she brought to anoint him on the head, she just starts pouring it on his feet. Woo! Imagine Simon. What is going on? Like, like, like he's got his friends and now he's like trying to go, what are they thinking of me? If I don't do something, what's going to happen? He doesn't know. And now he's going, why is Jesus allowing this? Why doesn't he just heel kick her? This is the scene. I mean, this is beyond remarkable. It is shocking. 
Now, like I said, I'm not trying to be crass for crass' sake, but we have to understand this whole dynamic. Because she has the reputation and her past fulfilled that reputation, she came known as a prostitute. So therefore, all of the men at the table would have filtered every act that she did as erotic or a sexual advance. Let me explain why. Kids, here. When a woman in that culture would let her hair down, it's in the Talmud, you can look this up, it is there. It was such an offense. It was the same as a woman exposing herself in public. Like that's what's happening. And kissing someone's feet was seen as a sexual advance. Jesus sees beyond all of that because he sees the heart and knows what's happening. But they can't. Because God's not fitting their paradigm. And we know what's happening. We know what's in the mind of the Pharisees because we get this insight in verse 39. This Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this and he said to himself, either he mumbled it under his breath so maybe his friends could hear it or it was just his own thought. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of person. Like, you feel that? That disdain? What sort of person this is? And he wouldn't allow this. Why would he say that? Because Jesus isn't acting and isn't looking like the God that they created in their image. Jesus is saying, this is my way. Come play this game with me. And as a spoiled child, he's like, no. I don't like your game. Play mine. Not a prophet. So Jesus knows this is not a shock. You don't have to be God to know what the Pharisees would be thinking in this moment. We all would know exactly what they're all thinking in that moment. Probably because we would be thinking it too. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> it's Simon. Like you just go, why did he say this? Say it, teacher. I think Jesus is hopeful that somehow he can help Simon see his error in his heart. I think Jesus is hopeful that he can try to help Simon lay down the created image of God that they came up with. I think Jesus is hopeful that he's trying to get him to see her as God sees her. A sinner who was lost but is now found. A daughter who has been forgiven of her sins and now has a seat at the table. Simon, I have something to say to you. You have pa Simon, you've passed judgment on me and you've passed judgment on her. So now let me tell you a fictional story and I want you to pass judgment on these characters. You ready, Simon? Say it, teacher. 
A certain money lender, verse 41, had two debtors. Fascinating, three people. Got a creditor and two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50, which is essentially a day's wage. So it's like 500 denarii would be 500 days worth of wages, 50, 50 days worth of wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? (laughs) I love Simon's answer because he's like, crap. Seriously. Like, he knows he has to answer the way Jesus has just set him up, because otherwise he's going to look silly in front of his friends. And so, like, with this word, I suppose, you ever do that, like, like parent your kids? You're like, hey, you know you didn't do that, right? Well, I suppose you're right. Well, I suppose the one with the more debt loves the, the, you know, the lender more. You've judged right, Simon. Way to go. Gotcha. I mean, this is this is short little story, packs a furious punch. Creditor to debtors. Both are in debt. And it feels like in the story that one's debt is far worse than the other debt, right? That's the what you're supposed to feel. None of you have ever thought that other people are worse sinners than you. I know we don't do that in this room, right? That's what he's trying to say to him. He's like, listen, like. Simon, I want you to think about this. She's like a 500 worth sinner. And sure, you're like a 50 worth sermon or sinner than, than her. Like she's done a lot more sin than you. But I want you to understand something. Neither of you can pay off your debt. Neither of you can live with this debt load. Both of you are insolvent. And if there is no action to be done, no mercy extended to you, what happens when you are like essentially in this scenario? Bankrupt, foreclosure, in that, in that culture, you can be enslaved until you work off the debt with interest or go to debtor's prison. And he goes, listen, here's the shock. The, the creditor graciously forgave both. Simon, you need to know, just because you think your debt is less than hers, you're both unable to pay off that debt. You can't work your way out of that debt. You can't do enough good deeds to get yourself out of that debt. You need a lender who's going to be gracious to you and to forgive all of that. And I love what Jesus says. Who do you think would love the lender more? Which is not the question you think Jesus would ask. I go, I felt like he should have said which one would be more grateful. But the fact that Jesus said love tells us everything that Jesus is going after. The heart. He's going after the heart. Friends, the Bible is clear. All have sinned. All have gone astray. None of our good works, nothing could ever make you right with the Lord. The saddest question and response in my mind is going, hey, how do you know you're going to heaven? And then the typical answer is, well, I think, or you go, do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I think so. Well, how? How do you know that? Well, I think I've done enough good. 
You think? Well, how much good is good enough? Reality, it's never good enough. This is the part. And I love this because some of you need to hear this. You need to hear how gracious God is. There is no hole. There is no pit. There is no past that is so bad that Jesus can't forgive. Your past isn't so unredeemable that you do not have a seat at the table. He extends the gift of mercy and forgiveness of your sin debt. All you have to do is choose to receive it by faith. This is the gospel, the good news that is preached to the poor and needy. We're all in debt. We're insolvent. He extends forgiveness, and we need faith to receive it. So therefore, the natural response is extravagant love. You cannot love God and love people until you first receive the love of Christ. Simon, verse 44 do you see this woman? Simon, can you see past her past now? Simon, can you look beyond the categories and the labels that you've put on her? Simon, can you see her the way I see her? Do you see this woman? Because now this is where wisdom is vindicated. Here, you want to know the fruit? If your way, your religion is right versus mine, It's right here in the person's response. Do you see this woman? Simon, can you reconsider the meanings of her actions? That she's not playing into her sexual past, but she is worshiping me, showing love because she's been forgiven. Look at 44 to 47. Turning towards the woman, he says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my feet with ointment, therefore, or anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, because of her response, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. That's how we know she's been forgiven because of her response. Wisdom is vindicated. Well, how are you doing, Simon? Are you loving me? Are you even upholding your own tradition because you ignored extending me the courtesy of hospitality? You disregarded it, and by her extravagance, she went above and beyond the normal gifts of hospitality. She's shaming you here, Simon. Wisdom is vindicated. Look at her tears. In the past, she cried over her guilt and her shame, feeling the weight of her past, knowing that she has no place of belonging, knowing that every step in her culture, people were judging her. She once had tears of pain and isolation, but now, because she's received this forgiveness, and now she has a virgin spiritual heart, she's weeping out of joy. Do you see her tears? Simon, do you see see her hair? 
I know what you're thinking, but can you see that she is shameless with it? She doesn't care what others see or think about her act. She's loving me, and I receive it. Yes, remember David who danced undignified before the Lord. Can you look past your labels, Simon? Do you see her kissing my feet and her pouring out this expensive gift of perfume? Oh, but yet, can you see Jesus, he didn't put her off. He wasn't repulsed by her. He's not ashamed of her past. He's not judging her, and she doesn't feel judged in his presence. Oh, the grace of God. He doesn't embarrass her, doesn't shame her, but loves her and esteems her and lifts her up in public. Friends, her love her extravagant love only stems from God's forgiveness. And that's why he goes on to say, your sins are forgiven. She already knows that. And so in essence, Jesus is saying it so that everybody else in the room can hear it. She's restored. She has a seat at the Lord's table. She belongs. She's forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Who can forgive sins? You're right. We can't. We dare not judge, but we do that. So therefore, by the fact that we judge, we also then deem who can be forgiven and who can't be forgiven. So I want to ask you some questions because this scene is is tense and you could be feeling the emotion and the conviction from multiple angles. But I want to ask some simple questions. I want you to look at your heart and ask yourself the question, what controls you? What influences you in how you see and love people? What influences you in how you see and love people? Which filter do you use to see people through? This is deep. We use multiple filters. Race, economic, political, religious. I mean, right, the list is endless. But to follow the way of Jesus is to use the gospel filter in how we see people. That's why I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us or it compels us it influences us because we have concluded this. What did we conclude? One died for all, therefore all died. We were all insolvent. We were all debtors. There was nothing we can do. He had to die for us, and that's how he paid off our debt. From now on, verse 16, from now on, because 
we are choosing to be conformed to his image, we are choosing to see everything through the lens of the gospel, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? I will not look at people with the labels and the categories that I have created or that our culture uses. I will strive to see people the way Jesus sees people. Even though we once did this, and I love verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Simon, can you see that? The old is gone, the new has come. See people as you see yourself. See people as you see yourself. That leads to the question, how do you see yourself? Because if you see yourself as somehow self-righteous or that somehow you can pay off this sin debt or somehow you don't need God, that's how you're going to see people. But if you can see yourself through the lens of the gospel, man, I was in debt and I couldn't pay it off. I had no hope. I had no seat at his table. And then Jesus paid my debt. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm loved. Past is forgiven. He knows everything about me and loves me. That's how we should see people, how we see ourselves through the lens of the gospel. Second question I want to ask you. We're getting more and more real. Do you love much? Do you love much? I see this work in two ways. First and foremost, is your love for Jesus extravagant? Or is it calculated, a little embarrassed, don't want to be known with him in public, or you, you just, you don't care? When you are reminded of the depth of your sin and then are reminded of the greatness of the love of Christ, how can you not love extravagantly? But man, we are so, I don't, I don't want people to judge me. I don't want people to think I'm a fanatic. I don't want people to do this. I don't want people to do that. This extravagance shows up through generosity and hospitality. Generosity is not, I'm not just talking dollars. I'm talking your life, expending your life on Jesus. And it flows into the other one, hospitality. Because you cannot love people unless you are moved by the love of God. This is how we love our enemies. This is how we pray for those who persecute you. This is how we move towards these types of people. Do you love much? Because when you remind yourself of the gospel, you start to see people the way God sees people and you don't judge them. This is so important. 
do you love much? Ask yourself, what is my display of affection towards Jesus? And am I hospitable towards others? Hospitality is a big deal. Did you know that's an elder requirement? Why is that? Because it's Jesus. But if you just love the people who love you, how are you looking like me? You're, you're no different than everyone else. Spot on. We love differently because of Jesus. So church, here, here's all I want to challenge you with. Strive to know Jesus and have your mind renewed by him. I don't have time to go through these passages, but just write down Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 8. And read all of Romans 12. Strive to know Jesus. Get at his table. Sit at his table. And allow him to teach you. Allow him to show you his heart. And allow yourself to be conformed to his image. And you constantly lay down the image of God that you have created. Let your mind be renewed by scripture. Get in the word of God, folks. It's not just this archaic thing that you do. The very first question asked in the history of humanity was Satan sowing doubt over God's word because he knew that if he could get people to doubt God's word, they will play God. Get in God's word. Sit at his table. Strive to know him. Jesus is worth way more than you know. He's war, way more important than your retirement funds. He's way more important than your career. He's way more important than anything that you're putting all of your energies into. Consider it rubbish. Sit at the table of Jesus and know him. Because when this happens, we as a church, we start to uphold the beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. And Jesus even said, the world will know you're my disciples. I forgot, come on. <laughs> By your love. Not scriptural knowledge. It's important that knowledge has to lead to love. Get in the word. Pray. Get into a gospel community where people are filtering everything through the lens of the gospel. Confess and repent of the image of God that you have created. Confess the hatred in your heart, the struggle you have to love people that you have placed in a category or label. Confess it. He will forgive you. And he will give you a time of refreshing and renewal. He wants this for us. He wants us to see people the way he sees people. So I don't know where you're at this morning, which person you're resonating. I'm willing to bet that there are some people in this room who are resonating with the woman. And if you've never felt accepted or loved or like you belong in a church or even if you felt that here at Austin Oaks Church, I am so sorry. 
you belong here. You are welcome here. Jesus loves you. And we are imperfect people striving to know Jesus and to have our minds renewed and to see people the way that Jesus sees people. I want you to know that whatever sin you have done in your past does not define you. He loves you in spite of all of that. He loves you as you are, not as how you should be. Come to Jesus, receive his forgiveness, and experience the freedom and and joy and love that he offers. Other of us, man, I'm telling you, we resonate with Simon. And it's pretty simple to say what that application should be. Confess and repent and receive his forgiveness. The church, the question that I'm leaving is will you sit at the table of Jesus and allow him to change you so that you can be and look more like him. Lord, I thank you so much for um, your word. Man, I thank you that it, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's alive and active. It reads our mail. It stirs us up and it draws us close. Lord, I thank you that when we read these stories in the gospels, it wasn't just centered and only effective in that time and place, but it is present and effective now. You are the same God. You do not change. You will never conform to our image. You will never bow the knee to what we want you to be. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be spoiled children, but we would come in humility and receive this gift of forgiveness and grace. God, make us a church that upholds this beautiful vision of the kingdom of God where we love you. We are captivated by you. And because of that, we are willing to love much. Help us to love people. Help us to pray for our enemies. Holy Spirit, We pray that you would produce this fruit in abundance in this church. In Christ's name.